What do hobby shops selling baseball cards have in common with boutiques selling high-end luxury handbags? Apparently a lot, and we're going to find out more today. Today, we're going to make sense of the future of collectibles with my guest, Katherine Harrison. She is the CEO and founder of Magpie, the SaaS platform to help collectible sellers scale efficiently. They automate inventory and sales workflows to optimize the value collectors buy and sell their items for. I am so excited for this conversation, but first, welcome to this week's episode of Make Sense, a video podcast that simplifies complex issues at the intersection of tech and people. So whether you're totally hyped on artificial intelligence and ready for the robot takeover, or you want to crawl into a cave after deleting all of your social media accounts, I don't blame you, I'm here with my guests to help make sense of what's going on so you can design yourself into the future. My name is Lindsay Tabus. I'm a product market fit strategist, innovation consultant, and venture fundraising advisor. Let's make sense of collectibles. All right, Catherine, congratulations on entering the 2023 class of Techstar Sports Accelerator powered by Indie. It's probably been crazy. How are you doing? Well, thank you. First of all, thank you for having me. I'm so excited for this conversation. And how is Techstars? It's madness. Anyone who knows about Techstars knows that Techstars starts off with three weeks of mentor madness. And I know, Lindsay, you've obviously been an entrepreneur in residence and you get to meet (laughs) such an incredible mix of people, but my Lord, it is madness. So um, I'm great. Yeah. Lots of new people, lots of new opinions. Some opinions are great. Some opinions are not so great. Um, It's fun to kind of get a total outsider's perspective on your business and also just be able to harness like a whole new crew of advisors for your business. My favorite part actually so far has been the people who are like, I don't understand why would anyone collect stuff? (laughs) Then you know that like they're probably not going to invest in your business or understand your business, but it really forces you to think about like, yeah, why do people collect stuff? Like, why is this important? Why can a baseball card go, which is literally a piece of cardboard, go for $12 million? Why can a Michael Jordan jersey go for $3 million? It's it's a really fun exercise in sort of helping to explain and think about the space from the outside. So I've been enjoying it. I want to live in the brain of a person that doesn't, have any need to collect stuff. (laughs) Indeed. Um, Given that I still have like dried out flowers from my corsage of my ninth grade dance. So I, (laughs) I I really do want to live in that person's brain. It sounds like it might be a simpler life experience than my own. I was going to say probably much less cluttered in multiple aspects of their lives, but you know, who knows? All right, Catherine. So let's start with our first segment. Uh, Anyone listening to Make Sense knows we like to start with crystal ball. What does the future hold? So this is where I call out interesting predictions for this year. And the experts, my guests, they tell us their hot take. I'm going to do rapid fire. And Catherine, I want you to say... Yes, I want that to happen, or yes, that is happening, or no, it's not happening, or I really don't want it to happen. And then at the end, maybe we'll pick one to talk about further or move on to the next thing. Are you ready? I'm ready. Here we go. (laughs) 
Okay, so this is a prediction from the end of last year for 2023, that the age of the tech CEO hero is coming to an end. So CEOs <laughs> like Mark Zuckerberg, Elon Musk, uh, Travis from Uber, I'm not going to be able to uh, pronounce his last name, Adam Newman from WeWork, this illusion that tech companies will save us has shattered. Amen. Thank God. We are there and beyond there. I think we have seen a lot of the bad behavior. A lot of the excess has come to the forefront. Uh, they tend to hire women to come fix these companies as they implode. We can have a longer conversation about that. But yes, that prediction, I think, is in full effect right now. Yeah, I was wondering, you know, as a female founder, how does the glorification of startup CEOs like that help or hurt you? I think it provides this box in which people expect to find the CEO of a tech company. And they, many of those people are incredible leaders, brilliant, have done amazing things. Um, but I think not fitting exactly in that box is one of my superpowers. I look <laughs> at things from a totally different lens. And I think that that sort of diversity of perspectives not just because of my gender, but my training, where I've lived, things I've done. I think that helps to give me an edge. So, you know, I think often fundraising, it, it can be a huge downside, but it means that people underestimate me, which is great. And then I can totally blow them away. So I like yeah, to I always, that. Yeah, I always love being what other people do not expect. Totally. Uh, which happens quite a lot. Um, Okay, switching gears. So regarding uh, secondhand fashion, which I know that you have touched in your journey with Magpie, uh, the yep. trend is old clothes will make for big business. So the fashion resale market has tripled and e-commerce marketplaces are continuing to grow. And the prediction is that, you know, brands will start to partner with e-commerce marketplaces to uh, make that market you know, that growth happened. Um, so I think this prediction is coming true in large part. I think there continues to be a lot of reluctance and skepticism on the brand's part about how best to play in the resale market because obviously, particularly Gen Z consumers um, are very interested and excited about e-commerce, resale, et cetera. There are... Um, climate and environmental concerns. There's also just like, let's be honest, all the fashions are back from the 90s. Like, I know, seriously. A <laughs> and this happens all the time, right? So I think that a lot of brands are keen to be seen as part of this ecosystem, but they don't want to dilute their value. I think there have been a lot of bad behavior. There's been counterfeits and garbage on some of these marketplaces. And so I think they really want to get involved, but in a way that they have a certain amount of control over because ultimately it's their brand, their product, and they want to provide that in a much more sustainable way. So mm -hmm. um, there's a variety of different approaches that companies are going after. Some are building their own kind of marketplaces. Some are partnering. Some have sort of almost like a car, certified, you know, pre-owned, pre-used clothing. And I think right. 
we'll we'll start to see more of those models and I think we'll see broader adoption for everywhere from like luxury down to mass market. So yeah, you know, I noticed a few months ago I was shopping for a dress for a wedding and uh, I think Nordstrom Rack or maybe Saks Off Fifth had Rent the Runway dresses on, yeah. on their site. So that seemed like an interesting partnership I wasn't expecting uh, when I was when I was shopping for a wedding dress. I love it. I think there's a ton of collaboration and cross pollination across the ecosystem that is only like only just getting started. And I think the brands that are bold and brave about doing it will get rewarded long term. Mm-hmm. So and you know I I love resale fashion for multiple reasons, and uh, I'm I'm here for it. Cool. Me too. So Catherine, you have a history in uh, blockchain and fintech. So one of the trends is regarding crypto's trust crisis. So despite crypto's trust crisis, leaders will push for widespread adoption by enhancing security, reliability, and user experience. Leaders of what is my clarification? Yeah. Clarify. Why is that interesting? Or why is that an important clarification? Well, we have a huge set of regulatory actions coming out of the SEC at the moment. So when you talk about leaders, there are different groups that I would look at. Leaders within the crypto ecosystem. I mean, I think Brian Armstrong at Coinbase has done a lot to try and live within the regulations that exist and be a good actor and actually bring and deliver trust around crypto to the market. And they're, they're getting a lot of attention and heat despite all that effort. So I think, I think there's at least a, a full acknowledgement of the trust crisis. I think it's been there for a long time. I think leaders in the crypto world are trying to get to some point of reasonableness. Like you need to have a set of rules and expectations that you can exist around. And I think that they've been they've been non-existent. They've been on every edge. And now we're sort of too far on the other end. Let's get some reasonable crypto regulation that doesn't completely get, like basically eliminate the US from the crypto world. Mm-hmm. I think that's one thing that I don't, we're not on track for that to happen, but I would really like to see that because otherwise we're seeding our position um, on like a global scale in the crypto market. Are you saying that like the U.S. might create an environment in which crypto is not an option for currency? Correct. I mean, I can't tell you how many crypto founders I know who are currently exploring, do I move to Singapore? Do I move to Europe? Where am I going to be able to really pursue like the world and the vision of the crypto ecosystem that I expect. So that's kind of one piece. I think that a lot of traditional corporates are taking a big step back. They're not talking about crypto web three or NFTs anywhere near the way that they were um, 12 months ago. Certainly now there are some super interesting projects coming out of Nike, out of Starbucks, that are exploring using NFTs for community engagement, et cetera. But I think broadly the Fortune 500 are much more cautious about crypto and largely taking it off the table in favor of generative AI. Um, yeah. Like let's last- switch to another sexy technology that we can 100%. talk about. <laughs> that has a, I mean, 
generative AI has its own set of massive trust issues that we, that I, you know, I worked on through Deep Trust Alliance. Um, but I think it has at least thus far had much less like direct financial impact and kind of yeah. bad behavior. So I think far. with this, so. with this trend, I kind of parse the words. I'm like, leaders will push for widespread adoption. I'm like, sure, they will push for it. Will they <laughs> get it? you know, is the other thing, right? I and that's actually a different think, conversation. And I actually think a lot of leaders in like any, like are taking big steps back from crypto. They don't, they worry about associating their brands with the bad behavior, frankly. Mm -hmm. so, so interesting. Things that get headlines are FTX and, you know, that those types of disasters. Yeah, so. you don't want to be part of those disasters. You do not. So the next two might help to explain, well, what are we going to do instead? Uh, the trend is that finances will become boring again. Just timeless money principles will win out. Well, there's this whole concept of the time value of money, and we haven't really had that principle in effect basically since the global financial crisis when we started just printing money through quantitative easing. And I'm okay. sorry to be like an econ nerd. Yeah, but I mean, I think you might have to make sense of that for me. <laughs> okay, sorry. Okay, so like generally in finance, a dollar is worth more today than it is worth in the future because of inflation and a whole host of other things, Right. So you want to make sure that whatever you're spending money on is getting you a return, right? Mm -hmm. But like up until we started raising interest rates, when interest rates were zero, value of a dollar today was kind of the value of a dollar down the road. You weren't making yield or any sort of return right. on your investment. So you could afford to spend lots of money paying customers to try your product or adding drivers to your platform. And now you don't have that luxury of being able to just spend money in such a like mm -hmm. free way. So a lot of the creativity that people came up with when there was less concern about available cash is very quickly going out of the system. And I think that that's good. Mm -hmm. I think that it's returning to a certain amount of discipline for everyone from individuals, I mean, the Robin Hood era of investing in equities, like it's, you know, gambling is like GameStop. <laughs> yeah. Like GameStop is not great for anyone. So, um, except for the people that were on the front end of that trade, it's also mm -hmm. not great for corporations. They spent, you know, lots of time and money on hires on projects that didn't solve real problems, didn't create a return. Right. And, you know, startups that were crazy ideas, you, you want to continue to have that creativity and innovation, but you want there to be a foundation at the, at, at the base that people are building on. There are problems yeah. that they're being solved, yeah. solutions that work, you know. Things you like want that. to move the needle. And when the money was so easy to spend – there was a lot of throwing things at the wall. And so Correct. maybe we'll spend a little more time on strategy ahead of time to figure out, uh, to, to calibrate our aim before we shoot, right? Uh, yeah. Next headline. 100%. Next headline. So then next, 
fintech's rapid regeneration. So how is the economy pressuring fintech companies to adapt? I think a lot of fintech companies are exploring B2B when they were originally B2C. And, you know, how are consumers using fintech to help navigate this economy? So I think there's two really interesting questions in that. One is the business models for fintech. And I think given what's happened, particularly in the venture ecosystem, there's a renewed focus on revenue. And it's a lot easier to get money out of a corporation or a business that has a pain than it is to get money out of a consumer. So I think that a lot of fintechs by necessity have been like, huh, where can I actually create a recurring revenue model. Oh, that's with a business that's trying to handle these payments on a regular basis. And I think that that's a great and important trend. So that said, there has been, like, we all have gotten so, at the foundation of the, like, consumer fintech world, the app economy, our phones Mm -hmm. have just made so many processes in our lives so much easier And financial services has continued to be the laggard there. Um, And so I do think that the platforms that are making mortgages, insurance, payment, et cetera, more understandable, more accessible for consumers have a really important role to play in the ecosystem. 100%. So when you think about that is great and that's really important and that helps everybody. So, yeah. Cool. So fintech is rapidly regenerating. It might just mean finances are boring again, but that's okay. And in crypto, we're it's just still gonna figure it out. We're we're still figuring it out, right? So yeah, I think in crypt, just one last point on crypto. I think you're seeing a return to investment in protocol and infrastructure and customer experience, so that you can actually fix those problems of trust, of transparency, which at a high level blockchain purports to solve, but obviously has not in the last several years. So yeah, I'm going to have to find uh, another guest who wants to continue the conversation on uh, crypto and fintech in general. I'm sure there's plenty of people listening that have questions. And if you have those questions, you should put them in the comments on YouTube or uh, email them uh, to me at hi at Lindsay T and I'd be happy to to, to bring them up with uh, future guests. So let's move on to the second segment. Tell me something I don't know. Really though, tell me something I don't know. You wrote a post about how hobby shops selling trading cards have a lot in common with high-end brands like Louis Vuitton or like boutiques selling high-end brands like Louis Vuitton. Can, can you explain this to me and to us? What, what's in common? I love that. Absolutely. So a lot of people are like, huh, cardboard is valuable. It's collectible. So let, let's take a couple of, of steps back. Let me ask you a question, Lindsay. Um, why do you love handbags or shoes or you know anything that you might buy at a luxury boutique? Um, of course, I'll I'll be honest. There's obviously well, they're they're beautiful. They're pretty. They look nice. People, other people notice them. Maybe there's also a longer quality, and of course, you know, 
it feels like special. There's some status associated with having, you know, a high end, high end item. So I think those are some general reasons, right? Yeah, totally. And I think that that is very similar for hobby shops and trading cards. So at the end of the day, there are a couple of key commonalities. So first and foremost is that these products are scarce and rare and hard to come by. Um, You know, you, most people are after what is the coolest new design, the collab between Louis Vuitton and Tiffany's. They are things that are not easy to get access to. And as much as that exists in handbags, shoes, and jewelry, it also exists in baseball cards and sports memorabilia and a whole host of other spaces. There are very rare and unique cards that are created that celebrate certain players, certain moments. Let me give you an example. Tops came out with a super cool new way of doing rookie cards for baseball. So every brand new baseball player in their first game of this year got a special jersey with a little patch. Those patches will all be included in cards in the future. And so you will have a true one-of-one card where, you know, the latest pitcher for the Phillies in his debut game, you literally have the patch that he wore on your card. Um, Hard to find, rare, and they're tied to a moment that is incredibly significant for that player. So let me ask real quick. So that patch, he's not going to wear on any other game day. So Correct. that's like one picture that will never be appear on another card again. Correct. So you'll have a picture probably of him pitching that day with that with that patch, which means Beautiful. it is a true one of one not available anywhere else making it incredibly exclusive, incredibly rare. And mm-hmm. so we humans are at the base. We're hunter-gatherers. We're out mm-hmm. like collecting the things that have meaning for us. And so um, if you talk to collectors, they tend to, they tend to tie their collections to either the teams or the players that they cheered for as a child, or perhaps they were at a specific game where something monumental happened. And I think that's the second sort of parallel that I would draw between handbags and trading cards. So they very much reflect the era, the history, and the moments that are taking place, right? And so those cards, whether it's a 52 mantle or like a Birkin bag from, Mm -hmm. you know, the 60s, like – those are really important moments in time. And they're Mm -hmm. actually like the physical manifestation of that moment. And I think that particularly for people that have a strong sense of nostalgia, a strong appreciation for history, they build collections that tie to those types of moments. Um, So that's, 
that's kind of the second main. And I don't know about you, but I'm sure there are either dresses or things you've worn at points of your life that, well, like your ninth grade corset. <laughs> don't make fun of me. I, I put that out there. No, I mean, for sure. Okay. Uh, you know, one topic that's like du jour the past few years because of the documentaries is that I was 15 when I went to Woodstock 99. I still have the like concert bill and like the fan that they gave away and the bracelets. And I have that, all of that in a scrapbook. Like that's just memory. Maybe not, maybe not necessarily <laughs> exclusive could be, I guess. But um, I am thinking for instance, about like uh, if I want to get fancy, like I have a, a Gucci like side saddle bag that I bought in 2003 when I went to Italy uh, during spring break in college, right? And this thing has memories, not just like, to be honest, I can barely tell you about actually buying it, but it has more mem memories that I wore throughout college and, and the places I've gone with it and its functionality and utility. And of course, now that it's more than 15 years old, it's considered vintage. Um, and if I wanted to get rid of it, I could get, get rid of it. But I certainly have a box that says clothes with memories. And it's not a box of clothes that I wear. It's clothes that have memories associated with them. I love it. Well, I think you should get those out and just do a fashion show for us on maybe at the end of this podcast. I'm not sure, but, um, and actually to your point about the Woodstock 99 ticket, tickets are actually incredibly valuable. They're one of the fastest growing collectible segments because for this very reason, because they are, you know, singular events where certain things happen, whether there's a lot of know, people just threw them out, you know, and correct. And especially now, as we go towards digital tickets, there are fewer and fewer real tickets around. So, um, so I think that significance portion is a, is a second kind of big, um, similarity. And then I, I you know, I think the third thing is this idea of community and passion for the product. So whether it's mm -hmm for the design and beauty of your Gucci side saddle bag, you could probably find a hundred different groups on Facebook that all are just talking about different Gucci products, if that's what you mm -hmm. are into. And I think it's very similar for um, trading cards and other types of collectibles. You have many people who shared similar experiences around a team or a player who collected the cards as a kid, who built set sets with their dads or, you know, with their siblings and who want to talk about the teams, the sports, the products and the hobby shop, much like a, you know, the flag store Louis Vuitton shop becomes like the Mecca for people that are excited about these types of products. And it, it provides really kind of a unifying physical space and place to see the products, to buy them, to understand them. And I think the other thing that's really important to realize is like given all of these unique aspects, you need someone that has a lot of expertise to help you make the decision, which Hermes bag am I going to buy? Which card am I going to buy? It takes a bit of time and expertise and learning 
to be able to feel like you're making really good decisions and to know why you bought the side saddle bag versus the over the shoulder versus Mm -hmm. the luggage, right? And that's the same set of questions that exist for collectors. And the stores provide that education, that community, that, that place where you can learn about, see, and, and check out all of the different types of products. I know I've talked about on other episodes with, uh, I've had quite a few of experts in e-commerce and retail and how creating community around a, a brand is uh, kind of like a North Star for um, brands right now. It reminded me of a research project I did uh, that required me to talk to 30 different people that owned luxury cars, Mercedes, uh, BMW, Audi, Porsche. And it was the Porsche car owners that had this like really big brand affinity and community. Like they, when they got their car service, they wanted to hang out at the dealership while this car got serviced because they wanted to talk to other car owners. And I know for sure with the the antique Porsches, you know, the ones from last century, there are Facebook groups of people sharing pictures of them out and drives in their cars and everything. So I think, um, yeah, you talked about exclusivity, you talked about like the memories and the sentimentality and then um, also the community and, and, and the opportunity to share kind of all of those memories and stories as well. And I think at the, at the foundation of all of this, it's just part of a human identity. You identify yeah. as having a certain amount of expertise. You are a fan of this team, of as this product, tribe, of this right. car. It's, it's literally how you present yourself to the world. Mm-hmm. The collectors that I know, my dad was one of them. Like his collection was part of his legacy and kind of what he brought to the world. And mm-hmm. I think it's just like, and then when you can connect with other people that share those types of values and affinities, it's a really, really rich experience. And yeah. there's also just that that nice tangible piece to be able to hold and look at the card, the bag, to drive the 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 Porsche, et cetera. So right. I think that like that combination of emotion, identity, exclusivity, I mean, some of these are the ultimate flex for sure. Right. <laughs> Okay, so let's talk about the future of collectibles. You wrote me that last week you had a really big week. Magpie scanned 50,000 cards for a hobby shop in Florida. So what are you doing to bring hobby shops into the future? How does Magpie help hobby shops? Yeah, so Magpie is a SaaS platform, as you mentioned, that helps collectible sellers scale efficiently. The biggest problem today is just that this is still a very physical business and there are hundreds, thousands, hundreds of thousands, sometimes millions of products that our customers have and getting them from the physical real world in their stores, their warehouses to a place where they can sell them. I mean, no retail outlet has enough space to actually physically display every single one of these products. Each one of them is unique, maybe graded, has like autographs. 
So actually creating listings for them and selling them across all of the different platforms is a job that takes thousands of man hours today. And so Magpie really automates that process. Um, We use AI to recognize the products, to integrate with different marketplaces, and to take out about 80% of the time that's required today to do that inventory, to do the pricing, and to do the listing. And so by aggregating this data about customers, about products, we can help hobby shops spend much less time on the really painful organizing and sorting and much more time on the community building, the selling, the sourcing, the fun parts of the hobby. The, the advising piece, right? A hundred percent. And we can also help, you know, you probably don't know this, but a lot of hobby shops spend a lot of time buying collections from collectors. Mm -hmm. And so helping them be able to figure out what to buy at what price just helps to get collectors much more engaged and more liquidity into the ecosystem. Sure, sure thing. So you mentioned that it takes a lot of man hours. And I imagine that... um, as much as we'd like to snap our fingers and remove all the man hours, we can't. And that's going to take time as as well to, and, and for, again, for those of you who have listened to other Make Sense episodes, we've talked about, you know, artificial intelligence needs data to be trained on. So it takes time to put all that data in before that model can really produce the type of fast, lightning fast results that we might see on a chat GPT these days. So tell me about how you're slowly moving from, you know, probably some manual services that you have to provide to being something scalable and efficient for the future. Absolutely. So first and foremost, you have to find all the products. What warehouse are they in? What box? You have to figure out, are these baseball cards? Are they basketball cards? Are they Pokemon cards? And today, a lot of that continues to be manual. And we help, we accelerated this customer's um, business by probably four to six months because we were able to take so much that was basically not in inventory and move it into inventory. So, and we did a lot of manual sorting. Now we have partners that actually create um, physical sorting machines for lower end cards like TCG machines. And so there are some really exciting solutions and projects that we work with and partner with to start to take out some of that effort. Are those sorting machines like Okay, definitely a little nerdy when I was a kid and had those, you know, if you wanted to create rolls of coins and you dump all the coins and it sorts them into, you know, pennies, dimes, nickels, and quarters. So is it conceptually similar? Very conceptually similar. (laughs) Um, You have a very large stack of cards and it will figure out, are they, what color are they? What game are they? What sort are they? Et cetera. Cool. Okay. So keep going. Tell us more. So that's one section of hardware that's starting to emerge. There's also recognition software. So it's one thing to be able to read the words on a card. That's pretty kind of older school, um, but also to actually recognize the picture. Um, That is incredibly challenging, especially given that there are 
many different foils and colorings and holographic images. Right. Um, it's super not difficult. just a simple reverse Google search, Google image it search. Is, no. It is not a reverse. Yeah. And the other thing that's important to know is that these cards come in so many different varieties and parallels and one is called pink, the other is rose, and the third is red. And why discerning which one each of those is is not straightforward. So then once you create all this inventory with all of the important data, the product, the year, the player, the card number, any of those unique details, then you need to figure out what's this card worth? And you need to look at What is it selling for on eBay, in your store, in all these different marketplaces? So we start to aggregate that data. But you know what something's going to sell for in Florida might be different than what it's going to sell for in Philly or Arizona or California. And Hmm. so we're building the data that helps us understand how do things work in very specific stores, very specific regions and specific times so that hobby shops can make better decisions. This is going on Amazon. This is going on eBay. um, This is going on Mercari or Etsy. Mm -hmm. And I'm selling this in my store. So Mm -hmm. really being able to provide as much data as possible so that the humans can make the best decisions is what Magpie helps them to do. Yeah, that's awesome. So uh, in the startup world, I think services is a bad word. Uh, so how have you kind of navigated as a startup founder, a fundraising, you're in Techstars, to, to be like, yes, we do services? So I think in vertical SaaS, customer support is one of the most important and underappreciated differentiators and um, providers. A lot of these like big, very successful platforms you can't call anyone and get help. And mm-hmm. we've all had a situation where your Instagram account was frozen for a couple of days or PayPal locked you out and it is maddening. So first and foremost, it is a huge customer attention and customer support feature and customers are willing to pay for it. So it's a differentiator for sure. So that's the first thing. The second thing is as a product person, it is literally my greatest day, my highest dream to live the pain of my customer, to Mm -hmm. actually be sitting there and trying to figure out, is this a regular hollow, a reverse hollow, or an ultra rare? Uh, Those are different types of Pokemon holographic cards. (laughs) Thank you. Just for those of you who are new to the space. Um. To be bent over sorting and handing out cards. Like if you are a product manager that truly cares about your user and who is deeply excited about building something that is going to make their life better, there really is nothing, there should be nothing more exciting than to actually live and experience that pain and see firsthand how your product can change their life. And yeah, like we walk into our customers and we want to make them into superheroes. And mm-hmm. that is customer support, like services really help you to do that and to understand what the automation can do, what it can't do, what's a human decision, what's, you know, very rote and automated tasks. So mm-hmm. 
That's the second piece. Um, it's that deep identification and understanding so that you build a better product. 100%. You're speaking to the choir. Yeah, you yeah. have to feel their pain on a visceral level, you know, to um, and, and it can't just be sympathy and understanding. It really you have to feel it. And the founders I know that are the most successful are super passionate about the problem, you know, not really? just the solution. OK, so how else have you kind of positioned Magpie uh, services? And, and taking a services-led approach to building your startup? So I think, you know, investors tend to be a bit skeptical about services. They see them as not scalable. They see them as um, short-term, potentially non-recurring. And the one thing that I would say is also helpful about services is that they're revenue generating. And so yeah. as the as the... Um, as the market has turned from like pie in the sky ideas to how much revenue are you doing on a monthly basis, um, there is a lot of there's a lot more understanding and acceptance and enthusiasm for services because they set you up for much greater success. They build a deeper customer relationship, and they can still be recurring. I mean, they still yeah. can provide 100%. ongoing support, etc. So, mm -hmm. you know, I and. Frankly, for investors who don't get that value, then they're probably not our right investors. And probably one of the most important lessons I've learned over the last couple of years as a founder is that getting the right capital on your team is as important as that right founding team. So mm -hmm. um, that's a set of trade-offs and the right, the right people get that. So, so speaking of lessons as a founder. We're going to go into our final segment. Did you like that transition? You're laughing. For those of you listening to the audio, Catherine's laughing. So big smile. Well, we just need not only another segment, we need like another three days to talk through okay. all the therapy being founder. founder therapy. Founder therapy. So <laughs> third segment, who needs a safety net? In this segment, I ask my guests to share the risks, failures, nay, learning lessons of entrepreneurship and creating their own path into the future. So, Catherine, you talk a lot about focus, organization, and self-improvement on LinkedIn. What have, habits have been the most grounding for you as a founder carving your own path? Okay. So a couple things. I think developing routines that help you get into the right mode to make decisions, to solve problems, to deal with conflict, to fight fires um, are super important because otherwise it's very easy to get overwhelmed um, or distracted. And in the pandemic days when it was like your bed was right behind you and you could crawl into bed any day when the world was falling apart, hard sometimes not to do that. So <laughs> the practices that I have put together are few. Um, I wake up every morning, I do a meditation, I have a cup of coffee, and I journal for about 10 to 15 minutes just to get whatever is in my head onto paper and really to, to figure out where I am relative to the world before I open up my email, before I look at Slack, before I think about what anybody else in the world wants. And 
I wake up a good hour before my husband. So I don't even have him um, influencing where I'm going. So that's the first piece. The second piece is I have written a visualization for where I want to be in my personal life, in my business, in my friendships, in my family, one year out. And I just feel that like by reading that on a daily basis, it sort of helps to push like, am I going in that direction? I set this goal for myself. Am I doing the things every day that are going to help me get there? Vision Um, inspires action, right? So we might have a discrete goal that says, you know, I want to hit X revenue, but if you don't have a clear vision of what that revenue enables you to do and have in your life, you're not going to take as much inspired action throughout the day. And even viscerally, what does it feel like to ask for ask for the contract, to ask for the check? Like you want it out there, but like what do you actually need to do inside your body to make that happen? I think that's mm-hmm. been one of the most important lessons. So that visualization is huge. And then the other thing, and Lindsay, this came directly from you. So I have to thank you. I want to take list- credit, but I don't want to take credit because you've made it your own, but I will take credit. So keep going. <laughs> I'm giving it to you. Take it, take it, please. Um, is my list of weekly accomplishments. So um, it is so easy as a founder to see nothing but all of the to-dos that are ahead of you. And every day throughout the day, I will write down things that I have accomplished. And sometimes it's like I sent the follow-up email, which, yeah, you think is just part and parcel of doing your job. But actually, some days you need to remind yourself that that follow-up email is going to lead to a contract, to a sale, to a customer, to a whatever. And when you look at your weekly accomplishments, on a, like I look at them on Sunday nights before I start to plan for the week ahead, it gives me the warm, fuzzy feelings of like, oh, look, I did things last week. I got a lot done. As much as there is ahead, um, there is also there's a lot behind you. Someone once mm-hmm. described being a founder as like climbing the Himalayas and you know, you get to the top of one mountain, but K2 and Mount Everest are ahead of you and it can be super overwhelming. So those are probably like three of the big sets of practices that I really have made my own. The morning routine with meditation and journaling, the visualization exercise, and then the weekly accomplishments. Weekly accomplishments. Yes. I have not finished this book Uh, but I was gifted it at the end of last year. It's called The Gap and the Gain. You know, a lot of us um, live in the gap. It's where we are today and how much farther we have to go to get where we want to be. The better place to live is in the game. It's like you know where you want to go, but you live knowing how far you've already come. And so really understanding and living with I've done so much. I can do so much more instead of not recognizing what you have done and just looking at like, I have this whole other thing to do before I can be, you know, where I want to be. Right. 
I love that. I'm definitely adding that to my reading list. Um, Gap for the Gain. I don't have it on me, so I can't tell you the author, but for anyone listening, we'll put it in the show notes. So, so. I also have um, come back to poetry as a founder. So there are a couple of poems that have really helped. I almost use them as mantras. Um, Ithaca by Kavafi talks about the journey and kind of getting to where you need to go. And there are times when I feel like the path is so long that I just read that and recite it to myself. And it like gives me a lot of comfort. There's another poem called Wild Geese by Mary Oliver, where she says- I was says, just going to mention Mary Oliver. Someone someone gifted me one of her best of books. And that is, a, she is a wonderful poet for grounding and appreciating everything around you. Yeah. Tying to nature. I mean, I think she, the, the start of Wild Geese is you do not have to be good. You do not have to walk a hundred miles on your knees through the desert. And when you just like think about that, it just can sometimes help you deal with whatever the, the decision, the conflict, the fire that's on your plate. And I think, you know, as much as we're all, especially in like startup land where how do we optimize with technology? What tools can I use to automate this and that? I think often coming back to like your humanity helps you be a much more effective founder. So 100, 100%, right? The people part of any experience is just as important as the technology part in the solution. So anything interesting you've learned about yourself from tracking your accomplishments week over week for 18 months? (laughs) Anything interesting um, that I have learned about myself? Um, There are weeks when getting out the emails is – it feels like the accomplishment – And then there are weeks when you move mountains. And I think recognizing just that ebb and flow and how how much of a delta there can be. And so that when I find myself in a week where like getting the emails out is a challenge to remember that the week where we sell five new customers, we ship three new features, it's coming. And I think it's so easy as a founder to expect yourself to always be at that like moving mountain stage. And to just have a little bit more patience and understanding. Um, I think that's, I think that's what, and sometimes I get as I get sometimes more excited about the little wins, like figured out how to do payroll versus, you know, some of the bigger, more, you know, exciting. Well, you know, sometimes, sometimes I, I can't help but think this whole time you're talking about the accomplishment of sending an email is, Maybe the actual time it took to write the email and press send, it's minuscule, minuscule, 10 minutes, maybe less. But we're not capturing the potential hours spanning over days where we have thought about the strategy that we are going to take to write that email and the emotions involved, the anticipation or the anxiety, the insecurity um, that might go into finally being ready to press send. And, And there can be a lot of fear wrapped up 
in something as simple as sending a single email. And so, yeah, it seems small, but it can be quite large. Completely. Not to mention, what did you have to develop from a product standpoint, a sales material, an investment deck? How Mm -hmm. did you even get the introduction to that person? Like, it's true. A simple email often represents like days, sometimes weeks or months of work. So that's it. I I think I probably shared with you when I started tracking my own accomplishments, there was a note to myself that literally just said, made a decision. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Right. Completely. Because there are so many decisions to make every day. It can just be hard to get them off your plate. Yeah. So I love that. I love that. So uh, all right. Well, let's make make it make sense. Uh, collectibles and high-end goods share a lot of the same commonalities, including exclusivity, memories, and community. There's a whole world out there of collectibles, uh, sports collectibles, but act- tons of other items that have a ton of meaning. And uh, we need to catch up and get them online so we can maximize the value for the for the owners and the buyers. And so the future of collectibles sounds quite exciting. And I just want to add that even if you don't consider yourself a collector, there are 61% of, uh, 61% of adult Americans are collectors. So that means somebody in your family, somebody you know, probably has a collection that's waiting in a closet for you. And just even being aware that it could have value or what to do with it could make your life so much better in the future. Yeah. So, I mean, we can leave people with a, a warning, right? That I, um, I know you shared with me early on. It's like the average family member closing out a deceased member's estate, they're getting like 10% of what the collection is actually worth. So we need Catherine and Magpie to be <laughs> successful so that we can actually realize the value of whatever we inherited sitting in the closet. Okay. So that's what exactly. we need you. We, we're rooting for you. So uh, thank you for listening to Make Sense with me, your host, Lindsay Davis, and my guest, Catherine Harrison, CEO and founder of Magpie. We hope you enjoyed our take on the future of collectibles. Uh, Catherine, where can people find you online? I did mention LinkedIn. Anywhere else? Yeah. Learn more about Magpie at magpiecollectibles.com. We're on Instagram at your.magpie. And I'm on Twitter, Katherine Harrison with no O in my last name. Thanks so much. All right. So as always, you can check out all the links and resources in the show notes. Final note. If you want to continue to be the smartest person in the room, I know you do, make sure you're getting notified when each episode hits. On YouTube, you're going to smash that subscribe button for next week's episode. And for audio only, follow wherever you get your podcasts. Thank you, Catherine, for joining us. Thanks, Lindsay. This was so fun.